Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Hi, I'm Roberto Mazza, the host of Jerusalem Unplugged. In this podcast, we will not only explore the fascinating history, politics, society and incredible people of Jerusalem, but also unravel how this city plays a significant role on the global stage. Join me in uncovering the multifaceted stories that make Jerusalem not just a local gem, but a force that resonates worldwide. Welcome to the second episode dedicated to the Balfour Declaration. Today, I will recast a couple of talks that were recorded on November 2nd, 2017, right when we were discussing the centennial of the Balfour Declaration. The British Council, the Kenyon Institute, together with the Educational Bookshop in Jerusalem, organized a major event which included a number of scholars, including myself. So today, I'm going to present you the talk by Avi Schleim and Salim Tamar. The event, 100 years after the British legacy in Palestine, Balfour and beyond, was hosted at the Palestinian National Theatre of Jerusalem on November 2nd, 2017. And all of the talks, including mine, can be found on YouTube following the Kenyon Institute and Educational Bookshop channels. We'll post all the links in the podcast. First, we will hear from Professor Avishlein, and later, we will hear from Professor Salim Tamari. Enjoy the listening and their discussion of the Balfour Declaration. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to begin by thanking the Kenyan Institute, the British Council, and the Educational Bookshop 
for convening this conference on Britain's uh, legacy in Palestine and for uh, inviting me to give the keynote address. Uh, the title of my talk is Britain and Palestine from Balfour to May. And the fundamental fact about the Balfour Declaration is that it was illegitimate. Daniel O'Connell, an Irish leader of the 18th century, once said that nothing is politically right which is morally wrong. The Balfour Declaration was morally wrong and therefore it could not be politically right. Talleyrand, the French diplomat, said about the execution of a nobleman, it's worse than a crime, it's a mistake. The Balfour Declaration was both a crime and a mistake. It was a crime against the Palestinian people and it was a mistake from Britain's point of view because it was like a millstone round Britain's neck until the very end of the mandate. <clears throat> and finally, uh, there is an Arabic saying that something that starts crooked remains crooked. British policy towards Palestine in 1917 was crooked and it remains crooked today. Last year was the anniversary of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. This year is, of course, the anniversary of the Balfour Declaration. Both documents are landmarks in the history of the modern Middle East. The difference is that Sykes-Picot was not implemented, whereas the Balfour Declaration was implemented. Both remain highly important at the symbolic level to this day. The Sykes-Picot Agreement is the symbol of the colonial carve-up of the Middle East with dis in disregard for the rights and aspirations of the local people. And the Balfour Declaration is the symbol of Britain, a British imposition of a Zionist entity in the heartland of the Middle East. The Sykes-Picot Agreement and the Balfour Declaration remain the main terms of reference for all Arab nationalists from then until today. The Balfour Declaration was only 67 words long, but it had the most far-reaching consequences for Jews, for Palestinians, and for the entire region. It started the process of the dispossession, dispersal, and exile of the Palestinians, which culminated in the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 in the Palestinian Nakba, or catastrophe. Today, I would like to focus on British imperialism, on Britain's record, in Palestine over the last hundred years. The Zionist movement was Britain's junior ally in the dispossession of the Palestinians. Zionism was a settler colonial movement and its principal political progeny, the State of Israel, 
uh, is a colonial settler state. Noam Chomsky observed that settler colonialism is the most extreme and sadistic form of imperialism. The Palestinians had the great misfortune of being at the receiving end of both British imperialism and Zionist colonial, uh, settler colonialism. Britain's moment in the Middle East, to use the title of Elizabeth Monroe's classic book, Britain's moment in the Middle East was brief, but its consequences for the Arabs were devastating. Britain denied the Arabs independence, freedom, and democracy. The hallmarks of British policy towards Palestine were deviousness, duplicity, and double standards. The French called Britain perfidious Albion, which is true, but the French are no less perfidious than the British. Perfidy and egotism are in the DNA of colonial powers. In the course of World War I, Britain made three famous promises which were incompatible with one another on the future of Palestine. Historians have dwelt endlessly on the text, and I would just like here to mention briefly the context, which was that Britain was fighting a desperate world war, and it was desperate in search of allies, and in its search of allies, it made these three different commitments. <clears throat> the first promise in 1915 was to Hussein the Sharif of Mecca. The promise was made in the course of the Hussein McMahon correspondence. And the promise was that if the Sharif of Mecca mounted an Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire, Britain, at the end of the war, would support the establishment of an independent Arab kingdom under his rule. This was a very big ask of the Sharif to ally with an infidel against his Muslim overlords, but he kept his side of the bargain. Later, there was a dispute, or at least Britain denied, that Palestine was included in the promise. The Sharif was convinced, for good reason, that he had been promised Palestine as part of the kingdom. But since Britain reneged on its promise of an independent Arab kingdom to the Sharif of Mecca, whether Palestine was included or not becomes a purely academic issue. And when I say academic, I mean futile. In 1916, Britain concluded the Sykes-Picot Agreement. This was a secret agreement between Britain and France, an agreement to divide the Arab, the Middle Eastern parts of the Ottoman Empire into a French and a British sphere of influence. The Allies couldn't agree on Palestine, so they decided they compromised by placing Palestine under an independent um, 
international administration, in effect it was to be a condominium. Um, the Sykes-Picot agreement flatly contradicted the promise to the Sharif of Mecca. But worse was to come, because in 1917, a hundred years ago today exactly, Britain issued the Balfour Declaration. And Prime Minister Theresa May reminded us that the letter of Balfour to our Lord Rothschild is one of the most important letters in history. T Theresa May, remember the name, I'll come back to her. <laughs> the Balfour Declaration said, as you, know, you have just heard, that Her Majesty's government would, would view with favor the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of the non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights or status of Jews anywhere. So Palestine became the twice-promised land. First it was promised to the Arabs, and then it was promised to the Zionists. Arthur Kostler, the Jewish writer, summed it up by saying that one nation, Britain, promised the land of another people to a third people. Britain had no moral or legal right to make this promise. The concept of a national home did not exist under international law. But for the Zionists and for the British policymakers, it was crystal clear from the beginning that a national home would be only the start of what would develop in time into a Jewish state. In 1917, the Arabs were 90% of the population. The Jews were just under 10% of the population, and the Jews owned 2% of the land. So this was a classic colonial document which totally disregarded the rights, the opinions, and the aspirations of the majority of the people who lived on this land. The big question is what was Britain's motive in issuing this declaration? And here there are two broad schools of thought, the humanitarian school and the imperialist school. The humanitarian school says that this declaration was, this gesture was a noble project, a noble Christian Zionist project to enable an ancient people to return to its ancestral homeland. And the imperialists, um, so the motives were altruistic. The imperialist school says that the motives were self-seeking, they were selfish, and that they were the result of British imperial calculations, right or wrong, but the result of British imperial calculations. I haven't come across any convincing evidence to support the humanitarian version. So I'll put forward 
the imperialist interpretation of British motives, plus, plus an element of anti-Semitism. And it should come as no surprise to you that anti-Semitism and pro-Zionism sometimes go hand in hand together. And it was no other than Theodor Herzl, the prophet of uh, the Jewish state, who predicted that the anti-Semites will become our most loyal friends. Arthur Balfour himself may have been anti-Semitic. At any rate, he once met with Cosima Wagner in Bayreuth, and they discussed the Jews. Cosima Wagner was the wife of the composer, and she was even more anti-Semitic than her husband. And Balfour, by his own account, said, by his own account, um, said he shared, quote, many of her anti-Semitic prejudices, unquote. In 1905, Balfour, as Prime Minister, introduced the Aliens Bill in order to prevent East European Jews who are facing persecution from coming, from finding refuge in Britain. This was the first major piece of anti-immigrant legislation in Britain, and this is a very burning issue in British politics today. Um, Balfour realized, of course, that his declaration contradicted the principle of self-determination, but he didn't care. He had no intention of consulting the local population. In 1919, Balfour wrote to Lord Curzon, who had strongly opposed the Balfour Declaration in Cabinet, Zionism be it right or wrong, good or bad, is rooted in age-long traditions, in present needs, of far profounder import than the desires and the prejudices of the 700,000 Arabs who now inhabit <coughs> that ancient land. So the Zionists had traditions, they had a past, they had present needs, they had future hopes, and the Arab majority had only desires and prejudices. Note the offensive language and the Olympian disdain with which Balfour treated the Arabs. Balfour also admitted in 19, quote, so far as Palestine is concerned, the powers have made no statement of fact which is not admittedly wrong, and no declaration of policy which, at least in the letter, they have not always intended to violate. So there can hardly be a more conclusive proof of British duplicity and cynicism. But the real driving force behind the Balfour Declaration was not the Secretary of State, but Prime Minister David Lloyd George. Lloyd George was a Welsh radical, but in foreign policy he was an old-fashioned British imperialist 
and a land grabber. And he fell under the spell of the Zionist leader, Chaim Weizmann. During, uh, during Lloyd George's premiership, Chaim Weizmann visited him at number 10 Downing Street 11 times. But geopolitical considerations remained paramount. Everything was subordinated to British imperial priorities. Lloyd George wanted Palestine in the British sphere of influence for two reasons. One was to exclude the French, and the other is because Palestine controlled the access to uh, the Suez Canal and therefore the imperial routes of communications to the Far East. The generals said that they did not need Palestine, but Lloyd George had broader imperial considerations. The Israeli scholar from Haifa University, Daniel Gutwein, in an important article on the politics of the Balfour Declaration, said that the British government at the time was divided into two schools of thought on the future of the Ottoman Empire, the radical school and the reformist school. The radical school wanted to dismantle the Ottoman Empire and replace it with British client uh, states. And the reformist school wanted to keep it as one unit, but to reform it. Lloyd George was the leader of the radical school, and when he became prime minister in December 1916, he pushed the radical agenda as hard as he could. Uh, Zionism fitted into this agenda, and Weizmann became his close ally. There seemed to be a convergence between the Zionist desire for a toehold in Palestine and Lloyd George's desire to incorporate uh, Palestine in the British sphere of influence. According to this thinking, Palestine would become a British protectorate. Zionism would legitimize the British presence in Palestine. But Lloyd George miscalculated. He did not really need the Zionists. The Arab nationalists were a much more powerful instrument for dismantling the Ottoman Empire, and they were already Britain's ally. If the aim was to renege on the Sykes-Picot agreement, then Lloyd George could do it with the willing cooperation of the Arabs. All he had to do is to honor the promise that Mahmoud had made to Hussein the Sharif of Mecca. The population of Palestine was predominantly Arab. The Zionists project was to bring European Jews to Palestine, and this was bound to provoke opposition. Moreover, Lloyd George knew that the majority of British Jews were opposed to uh, the Zionists, so why did he, did he privilege the Zionists? The answer, as suggested by Tom Segev in one Palestine complete is that he had a highly inflated idea of the international influence of the Jews. He often spoke of world Jewry or international Jewry as if it was a monolithic political force. 
His support for Zionism was based on a, on a misperception. In aligning Britain with Zionism, he acted in the mistaken and perhaps anti-Semitic view that the Jews had subterranean power, that they made the wheels of history turn. More specifically, he relied on what he thought would be a predominant influence of the Jews in Russia and in the United States. The reality was that the Jews were an impotent minority with nothing to offer except the myth of international Jewish power, and the Zionists were a tiny minority within the Jewish minority. The great majority of influential English Jews were opposed to the nationalist idea inherent in Zionism. Sir Edwin Montague, the Secretary of State for India, was the only Jewish member of the Lloyd George cabinet. And on the 23rd of August 1917, he submitted to the cabinet a four-page memorandum under the heading the anti-Semitism of the present government. In this document, he laid out the Jewish case against Zionism, and he proved to be very far-sighted. His premise was that Judaism is a religion, not a nation, and therefore it did not make sense to create a Jewish state. He argued that a Jewish state in Palestine would undermine the struggle for equal rights for Jews in Britain, in Europe, and everywhere else. And speaking in a personal note, he said, if there was a Jewish state in Palestine, it would make him an alien in his own country. He concluded that Zionism was, quote, a mischievous political doctrine untenable by any patriotic citizen of the United Kingdom. But the cabinet voted for the Balfour Declaration. <clears throat> the first draft for the declaration had been submitted by Dr. Weizmann. There were many su subsequent drafts. When the cabinet was discussing for the last time the Balfour Declaration, Dr. Weizmann was waiting in the antechamber, and when the decision had been taken, the cabinet secretary, Sir Mark Sykes, went out and announced the good news. He said, Dr. Weizmann, it's a boy. Uh, the next landmark was the League of Nations mandate for Palestine. It was given to Britain at the San Remo Conference in 1920. And the Balfour Declaration had been written into the preamble to the mandate. So what had been a non-committal British promise to the Zionists became a binding international document. Um, but apart from helping to create a national home for the Jews in Palestine, the mandate required, uh, stated that Palestine was a, a sacred trust of civilization 
and Britain had to prepare the country for independence. Preparing a country for independence means introducing democracy, uh, but this Britain did not do, so it did not fulfill the terms of the mandate, the broader terms of the mandate. From the point of view of British interest, the Balfour Declaration was a colossal strategic blunder because it turned Palestinian and Arab and Muslim, um, uh, it provoked the opposition and resistance of all these uh, groups, resistance that continues to this day. And in the most recent speech by President Mahmoud Abbas, he spoke about the Balfour Declarations. I read his speech, I agreed with everything he said. It's very much along the critique that I'm putting forward to you today. As a mandatory power, Britain favored the Zionists. Sir Herbert Samuel, the first commissioner, uh, high commissioner, was both a Jew and um, an ardent Zionist. And I'm very pleased to see in the audience my friend Bernard Wasserstein, who is the distinguished biographer of Sir Herbert Samuel. The Palestinians demanded democratically elected a democratically elected National Assembly and government. Um, Whitehall rejected all their demands. Sir Martin Gilbert, who cannot be suspected of anti-Zionism, in a speech in the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, said the following. The cornerstone of mandatory policy was to withhold representative institutions for as long as there was in Palestine an Arab majority, unquote. So this is the key to British policy, to prevent representative institutions until the Jews became the majority in Palestine. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There was also an element of racism that colored Britain's approach to and conduct in um, Palestine. Let me quote from the evidence that Winston Churchill gave to the Peel Commission of Inquiry in 1937. This is what he said. I do not agree that a dog in the manger has the final right to the manger, even though he may have lain there for a very long time. I do not agree, I do not admit that right. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or to the black people of Australia. I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, a more worldly wise race has come in and taken their place." Unquote. So the Palestinians are a dog in the manger, but the Jews are a superior race and a higher grade race. The racist language is utterly shocking, but not surprising, because racism and imperialism often go hand in hand together. In 1936, an Arab revolt broke out. Britain crushed the Arab revolt with the utmost brutality. And Rashid Khalidi has argued, and I agree with Rashid Khalidi, that Palestine wasn't lost in the late 1940s. It was lost in the late 1930s because of the decisive manner in which Britain crushed Arab resistance to Zionism. This brings me to the 1948 war, and I'm not going to go over the debate between the old Zionist historians and the new historians or revisionist Israeli historians, a group that originally included Benny Morris, Ilan Pate, and myself. I'll only focus on one bone of contention in the debate, uh, British policy towards the end of the inglorious end of the British mandate in Palestine. The old historians say Britain's aim was to prevent the emergence of a Jewish state. The new historians led by Ilan Pape, argue that Britain accepted the emerger inevitable emergence of a Jewish state. Its aim was to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state. The key to British policy was Greater Transjordan. 
to support the bid by its client, King Abdallah of Jordan, for the Arab part of Palestine, for the West Bank. Um, Abdallah was called in the Foreign Office Mr. Devin's Little King, and one British official called him a born land grabber. He was, and so were the Zionists, and the 1948 war degenerated into a general land grab. The winners were the Zionists and Abdallah, who captured the West Bank and, and annexed it later to his kingdom. The losers were the Palestinians. Let me now skip 70 years and get to Theresa May. <laughs> She's an unqualified supporter of Israel and probably the most pro-Israeli leader in Europe today. Uh, May gave an address to the Conservative Friends of Israel uh, after she, soon after she became Prime Minister. The entire cabinet and over 80% of Tory backbenchers belonged to the Conservative Friends of Israel. She described Israel as a remarkable country, a thriving democracy, a beacon of tolerance, an engine of enterprise, and an example for the rest of the world. May reminded her audience that Britain was entering a special time, the centenary of the Balfour Declaration, and she went on to deliver her wholly one-sided verdict on this infamous document. It is one of the most important letters in history, she said. It demonstrates Britain's role in vital role in creating a homeland for the Jewish people. And it is an anniversary we will be marking with pride. No mention of the Palestinians or Britain's failure to protect their rights. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has a different take to the Prime Minister. In, 19, in 2014, in his biography of Churchill, Johnson wrote, that the Balfour Declaration was bizarre, a tragically incoherent document, and an exquisite piece of Foreign Office Fujirama. This is the only statement by our Foreign Secretary that I think displays sound judgment and historical insight. But in 2015, on a trip to Israel as Mayor of London, Boris Johnson hailed the Balfour Declaration as a great thing. Apparently, there is no limit to British duplicity. An unbroken thread of duplicity and skaldaggery connects British foreign policy from Balfour to Boris. I must conclude this brief survey of Britain's record in Palestine over the last hundred years by saying that this record is shameful and indefensible. In Britain, in Palestine, Britain empowered a small minority to start a systematic takeover of the country. Britain overfulfilled its promise to the Zionists. It promised to view with favor the establishment of a national home, but it ended up by helping them to 
to achieve a state. And it allowed Palestinian rights to be compromised in the process. It's a sad story of double standards, broken promises, and betrayals from Balfour to May. Theresa May has accepted Lord Rothschild's invitation to a dinner in London this evening to celebrate the Balfour dinner, um, Declaration Centenary. The other guest of honor is Benjamin Netanyahu. Jeremy Corbyn was invited but declined to take part. Funnily enough, Corbyn declined to take part in a celebration because he has the most consistent record of support for Palestine for justice for the Palestinians. Um, funnily enough, I wasn't invited. <laughs> and, and it may be sour grapes on my part, but I angrily reject Theresa May's claim that Britain should mark the anniversary with pride. There is nothing to be proud of. On the contrary, she and her government ought to hang their head in shame. Thank you. The second talk will be delivered by Professor Salim Tamari. And if you remember, Salim was the first guest of Jerusalem Unplugged. Professor Tamari talks about uh, how the Balfour Declaration was received in Palestine, particularly right after World War I and in the early 1920s. Um, I'm going to discuss the impact of the Balfour Declaration on the native population of Palestine and the Arab regions of the Ottoman Empire immediately after its issuance. And one of the most interesting discoveries uh, one of my great uh, obsessions, if you like, is reading diaries and memoirs and going over the main diaries which were written during that period. Uh, people like Mohammed Azad Darwazi, uh, Khalil Sakakini, Rustam Haydar, um, Salim Slam. It's very little mention of Balfour at the time. And there's mention of Balfour retrospectively, and there's a lot of mention of Zionism, but the occurrence of Balfour at the end of the war, uh, remember 2nd of November uh, 2000, uh, uh, 1917 was just weeks, if not days away from the bombardment of Jaffa and Gaza by the British fleet and the entry of the British army into Palestine in early December. So we're talking about two or three weeks difference. And the whole region was engulfed with the bitterness of the war, the famine years, uh, and especially the dismemberment of Syria after the uh, uh, Sykes-Picot agreement. This was the overarching uh, feeling that you can see from the diaries written about the time. And I want to start with a picture that is a very unique picture that comes from the German archives. It has never been published uh, of a demonstration that occurred in the Moristan of Nablus. This is the government hospital Nablus. 
And this occurred at middle of December 1917, after the fall of Jerusalem to the British forces and before the northern part of Palestine was uh, taken over by the British. The Ottoman army was still there. There was a massive demonstration of young men, and some of them old actually, uh, holding the Ottoman flags and the banners of the 4th Imperial Army uh, and uh, denouncing the British occupation, calling for uh, jihad against the forces of the West, of the French and the British armies. I will come back to this at the end, and I want to stress that immediately after the issuing of Belfer, uh, almost one week later, in uh, December uh, uh, 1917, the Jewish Chronicle had, was the first paper to publish the terms of the Belfer Declaration in London. Al-Muqattam, which was a pro-British Arab newspaper in Cairo, uh, published the terms of the uh, Belfer Declaration, was the only Arabic papers to do that. And within days, there was a massive demonstration in Cairo and Alexandria by the Jewish community, and in which Jack Mosseri and uh, members of the, of the Egyptian parliament spoke, welcoming the um, Belfort Declaration. And this invited reactions throughout the Ottoman, the remaining part of the Ottoman Arab lands against this uh, attempt to dismember Palestine from the Sultanate. Uh, the point is that the, most of the people were oblivious to this. They were oblivious for the, for the reasons I mentioned, namely that Palestine and Syria, and especially Mount Lebanon, had just come out from a very bitter war in which uh, hundreds of thousands of people were killed, in which uh, ethnic minorities were being liquidated, in which the famine still had effect on the urban economy, and a huge loss by the urban uh, adult population who either died in the front or were taken by Safar Barlet and never came back. The earliest responses to uh, Sykes-Picot were seen in the form of demonstrations which began in Jerusalem and Jaffa, and later in Nablus, uh, against uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and especially against the dismemberment of Palestine from Syria. And one feature of it was the publication of uh, a, a newspaper called Southern Syria by Arif al-Arif and Ahmad Buderi, who stressed the main reaction of the Arab intelligentsia at the time to the dismemberment of Palestine from Syria, and from the uh, Ottoman domain. Basically, they thought, if we are going to be independent of the Ottomans, we should be also independent in our region. And one reaction to Balfour and to Sykes-Picot, and the two obviously are very much related, was that uh, Palestine is southern Syria. It's an essential part of Bilad al-Sham. Any attempt to separate it would put us at the mercy of the British intention of to implement the idea of a Jewish national home in a separate part of the homeland. 
So in a way, it was a paradoxical reaction to the demand for Palestinian independence by asserting the organic unity of Palestine with Bilal al-Sham, with, with Syria. Uh, this is one of the earliest demonstrations in Jerusalem uh, in which uh, we see in the middle Arif al-Arif addressing the crowds, uh, asserting that Palestine is southern Syria and with banners showing different parts of the country from Tulkarim, Jenin, Haifa, Akka, uh, and there's a little sign which says Beit Sahur. Uh, the most systematic attack on the terms of the Balfour Declaration uh, came from the pen of Najib Nassar, who was the editor of Al-Karmel. And he had already started uh, linking the idea of Jewish national home with the purchase of land by European Jews and the establishment of Jewish colonies. He himself was part of a, a bond of activists who had invested uh, some of their energies in purchasing agricultural land in the Jordan Valley, especially in the Bissan area. And he and Jubran Kuzma, who belonged to the, uh, what is known as the late Arab Renaissance, began to publish uh, articles in defense of the uh, peasants of the Jordan Valley who were being uh, pilfered by both the government liquidation of uh, their land and by the Zionists who were buying to establish colonies in the Jordan Valley. And this was the trigger of this move against Balfour and against the terms of, uh, of the Zionist movement. <coughs> he was termed as Majnoon al-Sahyuniya, because at the time, uh, the obsession with Zionism as a target for the separation of Palestine from Syria was confined to very few intellectuals. Most importantly, uh, Jubran Kuzma from uh, Nazareth and Najib Nassar from Haifa. And the organ of this uh, sustained campaign was Al-Karmel. Uh, at the same time, we see that uh, Arif al-Arif, who was prisoner in Siberia during the war, and escaped immediately after the Bolshevik Revolution, came through Manchuria to uh, Jeddah. From Jeddah, he joined Prince Faisal, or King Faisal, in the Jabal al-Druz, and then began to publish a, a newspaper called Surya al-Janubiya, Southern Syria, referring to Palestine, an attempt to stress the organic unity between Palestine and Syria. Uh, we see Arif al-Arif again, uh, this is his uh, carte de visite, announcing him as the editor of uh, South Syria, and here he is in Jaffa Street addressing the crowd. This is a very bad uh, picture, but he's, I can assure you that he's, that's, he's there in the middle addressing the crowd against the terms of the Balfour Declaration. But this happened in February, 27, 1920, so we're talking about two years since the issuing of the Balfour Declaration. The situation was different with the local Jewish community. 
The Jewish community in Jerusalem was headed by a man called Albert or Ibrahim Antabi, who was the deputy head of the Red Crescent Society, which was a society bringing together Jews, Christians, and Muslims in support of the Ottoman war effort. And he, like many members of the Sephardic community in Palestine, were weary of any attempt to question the loyalty of the local Jewish population to the state, on the one hand, or to uh, create a wedge between them and their relationship with the Arab, Muslim, and Christian community. Uh, the other organ which expressed the interests of the local Jewry is the newspaper uh, HaHirut, which is very different from the later Hirut, that was the organ of the revisionist, Zionist revisionists. Uh, this is a paper that uh, our colleague Abigail Jacobson uh, wrote extensively about, and it showed the ambivalence within the Jewish community about the terms of the Balfour Declaration at the time, even though this uh, particular group was not anti-Zionist, but they were ambivalent about the terms of the Balfour Declaration for the reasons that I mentioned. Nevertheless, in Palestine, we have, this is uh, Albert Antebi. Uh, in, in Jaffa, we have uh, the beginning of issuing local newspapers in Arabic that were pro-Zionist. And it's very interesting to look at these newspapers because it undermines the idea that the Zionist, anti-Zionist divide among the Jews separated the Ashkenazim from the Sephardim. Actually, a great number of Sephardic intellectuals uh, supported the Zionist project, but they thought that this is a Zionism that should not either question the loyalty of the Jews to the Ottoman state or uh, put a wedge between them and the Arab population. So it's a different Zionism that emerged later. Saut al-Uthmaniya was a, an organ which was headed by uh, Nassim Ma'lul, Shimon Moyal, and his wife, Esther al-Azhari, uh, who was also an active Arab uh, uh, feminist, but all of them working in the newspaper that Isa al-Isa called a paid organ of the Zionist movement. Uh, and a great deal of litigation court cases took place in 1915, 16, and 17, uh, between uh, Saut al-Uthmaniya uh, and uh, Isa al-Isa, who headed the other anti-Zionist paper in Jaffa, Palestine. Uh, so by 1922, the commemoration of the Balfour Declaration took the form of strikes, which were uh, uh, commemorated with uh, the black flags that you see in the old city, and the strikes extended from Jerusalem to Jaffa, two centers of anti-Zionist activities, also to Akka, Haifa, and eventually to Nablus. And in 1922, we see the entry of uh, middle-class Palestinian women, uh, the Arab Women's Union, against the Balfour Declaration. That was the first entry of the women's movement into the arena of public politics. We see here Tarab Abdelhadi and Sadij Nassar, who was the uh, women's editor of Al-Karmel and the wife of Najib Nassar. 
There was a very interesting episode of the creation of the Arab party in 1919, which was a, a self-turned Anglophile party headed by Jibran Kazma and Najib Nassar, whose aim was to create an anti-colonial tendencies that was also pro-English. Uh, they called themselves the Anglophile Party, but uh, self-styled anti-imperialist and anti-Zionist. It was a very um, uh, naive attempt to mobilize British public opinion against Zionism in the interest of the British uh, elements against uh, Balfour. And finally, uh, I want to bring in uh, the impact of what is known as the Zakharov affair uh, uh, on the possibility of reversal of the Balfour Declaration in, uh, inside Palestine. Zakharov was a very, uh, not suspicious, but a very enigmatic uh, arms dealer of Greek-Turkish origin. His name was Zakaria's his name was Zakaria, Basil Zakaria, and he changed his name to Zakharov to give himself uh, Russian protection. And he was heavily involved in armament dealings during the First World War and after. He concocted a deal which was revealed most recently by the uh, opening of the British archives and uh, uh, in which the uh, the English uh, were interested in making a deal with the Ottoman state and the dialogue with, with Anwar Basha, who was a, a very prominent member of the Committee of Union and Progress, to end the British terms of the mandate on Palestine and return uh, Palestine to Ottoman control, but in an autonomous fashion. And the Many people of the, within the cabinet were interested, including Lloyd George, but the attempt proved to be futile and it collapsed uh, at the end because of the heavy weight of uh, uh, those elements in the parliament, uh, in, the, in the cabinet that we discussed earlier, who sabotaged this possibility. And the reason this, uh, I mentioned the Zakharov affair, uh, is because of what Tom Segev called what if in terms of reversal of history. And what is interesting about the Zakharov affair is that it sort of underlines what Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi two years ago when he reached Raqqa, and it was only two years ago in 2015, he said this is the end of the, um, uh, the Sykes-Picot agreement. And of course now we are in November 2nd uh, 2017, just two years later, and we see the collapse of ISIS. But one feature of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's announcement is a reference to the fragility of borders that was generated by the First World War, the end of the empire, and the attempted implementation of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And I'm not sure why Avishlayim said that uh, Balfour succeeded, but uh, the, the, the um, Sykes-Picot Agreement failed. Actually, it was not implemented in the way it was conceived with parts of the Ottomans given to the Italians and the Russians uh, and then uh, Anglo-Franco-British uh, 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 division with the rest, but 
a major feature of the contours of the land that we see in the Middle East today goes back to this period. And one feature of the statement made by Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is the fragility of borders. And the fragility of borders is not only resulting from the rise of ethnicity, the demand for Kurdish independence, but significantly the assertion by the Israeli state to engulf all what remained of Palestine. And in doing so, given this background, 100 years later, the Israeli state is not only undermining the possibilities of the legitimacy of greater Israel, but of the Israeli state itself. And on this note, I end and thank you. Thank you for listening to this uh, second episode dedicated to the Balfour Declaration. Let me remind you that uh, the guests were Professor Avi Schleim and Professor Salim Samari, and their talks were taken from a panel that was organized on November 2nd, 2017, uh, when the world remembered in different ways the issue of the Balfour Declaration. So these particular talks were recorded at the Palestinian National Theater in Jerusalem, and there were a number of speakers which included myself. I will post on the uh, podcast notes the links to the full talks by Avi Schleim and the panel, which included myself, Salim Tamari, and uh, Stephen Wagner. Thank you for listening to this special two episodes dedicated to the Bible Declaration, and stay tuned for the next episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.